This is Salt and Spine. We should, as human beings, as we work with each other and work with nature, that we should always be trying to ensure that we're building relationships with all the people that fall into our collective. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Matthew Rayford. Now, Matthew is a self-described chef-farmer, that is chef and farmer, and the author of his first cookbook, Bress in Niam, Golagichi Recipes from a Sixth-Generation Farmer. Now, Matthew was raised in Brunswick, Georgia, where his formerly enslaved great-great-grandfather, Jupiter Gilliard, amassed more than 450 acres of land by 1874. Today, about 40 acres remain, where Matthew grew up farming alongside his grandmother, his father, and his sister, who also now helps run Gilliard Farms. Growing up, Matthew spent a lot of time in the kitchen, too, where he learned from his family how to prepare many of the dishes that he still loves today. But before Matthew became a chef, he left the South to join the military, and at the time claimed he would never go back. During his three tours, he spent time in Germany, Korea, and the Middle East. And then at age 28, Matthew returned to the States to pursue an education in physiology at Howard University. He quickly realized that becoming a physical therapist would take eight years, and gave it up when a close friend told him he ought to go to culinary school instead. After completing a year of culinary school in Virginia, he decided to continue his culinary education at the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York, and later attended UC Santa Cruz, where he received a degree in ecological horticulture. Since 2010, when Matthew's grandmother handed over the deed to the family's land, Matthew has worked with his sister as the sixth generation to farm their family's land. For several years, he also ran a restaurant called The Farmer and the Larder, in downtown Brunswick, which led to a nomination for James Beard Best Chef Award. And honestly, that's barely scraping the surface of Matthew's impressive biography, but it brings us to the cookbook. Titled Bress and Yum, a Gola phrase that means bless and eat, this is a book filled with both recipes and stories passed down through the generations. The recipes honor the land and the food that it provides and are cataloged into sections based on the elements, earth, water, fire, wind, nectar, and spirits. It opens with an ancestral tree and the story of Matthew's great-great-grandfather. And the recipes within range from a whole hog roasted over a pit to plenty of accessible and humble recipes like Reezy Peasy, a rice and bean dish often called Hoppin' John, whose roots are with the Golagichi. As Salt and Spine friend and chef Todd Richards wrote, Bress and Nyam more than gives people a great appreciation of Black culture. It further shows the diversity of Black culture through different shades and hues, with Golagichi cuisine as the matriarch of the Black food family. Now, Matthew joined us remotely from Gilliard Farm for this week's show. Stick around. We've got a great chat and, of course, our signature culinary game, as well as recipes for you to make at home. So let's head now to our virtual studio where chef farmer Matthew Rayford joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Matthew. How are you? Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thank you for having me, Brian. I'm looking forward to uh, us talking today. Yes, me too. Thrilled to have you on the show and to talk about your first cookbook, Bress and Nyam. Am I pronouncing it right? Yes, you are. Yes. Bress and Nyam. Bress and Nyam. and Eat. Yes, Golagichi for Bless and Eat, which I want to talk more about how you came to the, the title in a bit. But 
Congratulations. Beautiful book. The subtitle is Gola Geechee Recipes from a Sixth Generation Farmer. So mm-hmm. I thought we'd start there for folks who might not be as familiar with you and your work okay. and talk about you as a sixth generation farmer. So you opened the book, I know, with your ancestral story. And we mm-hmm. see actually your family tree visualized and you talk a little bit about that. Can you paint the picture for us a bit of how you opened the book and a little bit about your ancestry in that way? Definitely. So Jupiter Gilliard was born a slave 1812. Right after uh, the Civil War, he was able to purchase 476 acres of land for $9 in taxes. He had to swear allegiance to like the 23rd militia or something like that, that if anything ever popped off again, he would not sell to uh, anyone that was not in the union. And so that kind of starts the journey. So that was my great, great, great grandfather. Well, I was born in Bridgeport, Connecticut, but I was raised here in Brunswick, Georgia. So the farm that I'm that I'm currently on, I was raised on probably most of my life between being inside of Brunswick Girls School. The only other place she was was in the country, so to speak. So I have some formative years of being growing up on on everything from crookneck squash and sweet potatoes to large black hogs and the like. Everything was very seasonally done here on the farm, even when I was a kid. And so yeah. I'm trying my best to, to honor that. You know, a lot of the buzz, buzzwords right now, sustainability, organic, regenerative agriculture, and things like that. It's really funny because when I, I look back on, you know, when I explained to my Nana that I was going to go back to school and learn how to do this organic stuff, she uh-huh. actually thought, because when she passed, she was 96. She actually thought, I was going back to school to learn organic chemistry. Okay. Because yeah. for her, the word organic and chemistry were together, you know, because like I said, she passed at 96. Right. So when I came home and told her I was, that I, you know, had went back to school to learn organic farming, it was hilarious. I mean, it was yeah. super hilarious. She was like, well, explain that to me. So I started, so she said, so you went to school to learn which you could have just came out here and done, what you've been doing all your life. And when I look back on it, it was funny. But at the very moment, I was like, it felt like a super dig, you know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. My elder. Right. You know, like, I done done all the right things, you know. I went to school. I did all the right things. And she was like, baby, everything you done told me, how to make the, the compost and how big you dig the hole when you plant a tree. Mm, baby, I've been doing that. Mm. Yeah, you could. Yeah. I could have showed you how to plant them collard greens and them Sea Island red peas, you know. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's yeah, kind and- of me painting the picture of like, you know, really being a sixth generation farmer is, is literally coming back home to the land and realizing that inside of what and who I am and my family as a whole, that this isn't something brand new to us. You know, it's right. not like I quit my, you know. $100,000 a year marketing job and decided, you know what? I think I'm going to go back to the earth. Uh-huh. That That isn't it. You know, I, I this is, you know, I'm sitting here in overalls right now because I was outside prepping the ground for rice um, that we're getting ready to plant. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's just the way it goes. Yeah. And you, you even share some of those stories in the book, right? Despite all of your education, you know, you come back and I think at one point you decide you're going to plant some citrus trees oh. or some fruit trees, right? And, yeah, and your was, Nana says like, that's not going to work basically. And yeah. she was right. Yeah, right. pretty much, you know, and then I've also learned that it was also the varietals that I planted and 
all those kinds of things. I was just like, oh, lemons, let me plant it. Oh, limes, let me just plant, you know, instead of like, okay, make sure it works out for this specific plant hardiness zone and all those kinds of things. So, yeah, I mean, we, we literally have Persian limes planted here now, not just okay. a lime varietal, so to speak. So it, it's, I've, I've learned a lot of that, which, you know, in this particular case, it was time and money lost. <laughs> um, <laughs> sure. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know, I mean, that's one of the reasons I wanted to write this first cookbook was because I kind of wanted to talk about having been so connected to the land and having ran away from the South as quickly as I could. But I also didn't uh-huh. grow up in what people call the new South right now. And then come back home and all of a sudden it's like, oh, Muscadine moonshine. Let's let's have a drink and uh, let's celebrate this amazing black land that I have here, you know? Yeah, yeah. I want to come back to you leaving and coming back and, and some of that. But For a sure. little bit more on, on your childhood. You write about being exposed really to both the farming and the agriculture and also the culinary side of things. You write mm-hmm. about trailing your great-grandfather Horace and your mm-hmm. great-uncle Horace Jr. as they're knocking muscadines from the vines and picking wild blackberries. And then you say that your favorite place was in the kitchen, too, with your mother and aunts and Nana and mm-hmm. as they were cooking. And you write that even then you wanted to be a chef right. and talk a bit about your, your father having other ideas because <laughs> he'd worked in food and had some experiences that sort of soured him, yeah? Yeah, uh, he was a baker by trade, my dad was, huh. in the 50s and early 60s. And so in his particular field, he had not seen anyone that looked like me get to that executive level where you're in charge of running the show, managerial skill, whatever. And so he was like, look, son, a lot of things you can be cooking ain't one of them. And, you know, I I can't, I think I I might've talked about this to someone else one time before was that my whole life, I pretty much have been around food. I've never not been around some form of food and whether it be the growing part or the cooking part, and I'm I'm also the youngest male in my family also. So it okay. was like most of the males in my family are four year four or more years older than me on both sides of my family. So okay. I wasn't allowed to like just, you know, go to the basketball court with them, for instance, right? Because I was twelve ish, maybe eleven ish. They were like seventeen. You know, uh-huh. some of them were like the ones that were 15 were hanging with the 17 year olds. You know what I'm saying? Which meant that I couldn't go, even though the 15 weren't that far away from me. You know, that kind of a thing. So yeah. I pretty much ended up in the kitchen or reading, you know, because the TV was still black and white. I'm aging myself a little bit. At midnight, the, you know, 11 o'clock, the TV went off kind of a thing. You know, uh-huh. it wasn't 24 seven access like it is now. And so I kind of grew up with like old cookbooks. And I mean, you can even see some of the cookbooks that are behind me right here. Well, they can't. Sorry. Yeah. Um, but I have a bunch of cookbooks here. I mean, I have an original Escoffier cookbook here from. Okay. I have Alice Waters cookbook. I have Jessica Harris's The Africa cookbook. I have Alice Waters' The Art of Simple Food. I. You know, I have things on fermentation and raising pigs and raising goats. and So I've always been around that kind of stuff. And all, that's always been kind of like in me. And I think I kind of fought it. Right. You know, I was like, yeah. uh, I don't know if that's what I want to do. 
don't know everybody broke. Nobody has yeah. a lot of money. You know, I don't want to, you know, and so, but I, but I, I, I don't think at that point in time, if I may say this, that I understood that the simplicity of life at that point or at this point is so friggin' refreshing. Like it's yeah. the simplicity of my life. When COVID-19 popped off, I was kind of like, oh, <laughs> shelter in place. What do you mean you're going crazy? Why? Yeah. Because for me, I was, I mean, I got this farm. I got animals. I was outside. I had to worry about a bunch of people. And then I started understanding that the simplicity of what my life has become allowed me to thrive in a time period where most people were like, I'm stuck in my apartment. I was like, okay, well, why would you be stuck in your apartment? Like, you can go outside. You just can't gather. Right. And so because I understood that as a kid, because as a kid, Brian, man, you didn't sit in the house for no reason. Nothing. Right. I mean, you had to be, you literally had to be sick and in the bed because it was always yeah. like, go outside and play. Well, ain't nobody out there. Well, play with yourself. Go outside and play. Yeah. Go out right. and do something, you know? And I just, I can only imagine all the kids in the world that have not, that are just starting to go outside. And I was like, it's going outside. And I, and I pretty much, like I said, everybody was like four years older than me. So I was always outside playing by myself. You know what I'm saying? So it was always like, so yeah, in, in, in a lot of ways, I'm looking back on my life and I can literally say, I so appreciate those life lessons that I was given about nature and about being outside and, I can't complain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting to me that you talk about like you wanted to be a chef or you had the inkling of being a chef from a pretty early age. And of course, as you noted, you sort of you left and you you told your Nana, I'm never coming back and went into the military. Like, can you can you talk us through what you were thinking then? I know then you were you were in Germany for a while, Middle East, like you weren't thinking about food as a career so your father had sort of deterred you from that or what was well, going through you your know, mind? It, here's, here's you know, funny story. So here I, I land in Germany. I, I joined the military. I, I, my first deployment, my first base that I was stationed at was in Germany. I okay. get to Germany and I, I'm out on the German economy. And I was talking to somebody about like a butchery place or something. I think I was asking about ribs or something. They were like, they don't eat ribs. Like that, and I was like, "Well, how do y'all barbecue? Like, what do y'all do for barbecue?" I was uh -huh. like, well, "Can you get a whole hog?" Like, and they were looking at me like, "What the? What are you talking about?" Yeah. So I literally went to the butchery, the abattoir, and when I went in, of course, you know, I don't look like nobody there, you know. So I was like, "What do you want?" And I was, you know, I explained I was in the military and that I was looking to find out what they did with the ribs. And uh -huh. the guy looked at me, he was like, ribs? And I said, yeah. He was like, and he points at a trash bag. It's a big, giant trash bag. And I was wow. like, well, what's in there? He was like, the ribs, we throw them away. I said, what? He said, we throw them away. Man, I bought that. It, I think that it was like a construction. It, it would be what it, for the listeners to imagine. Imagine a construction bag Yeah, that's not really a plastic bag. It was much heavier than that. And that had ribs in it. I paid 30 bucks for that. Uh -huh. yeah. Wait, what? You know? So I was like, oh, I got to make some sauce. Let me go ahead and smoke these up real quick. You know? So, I mean, even then, I, I think, you know, I was uh, always wanted to work with food and be around. Food. I just didn't want to be a cook in the military. 
You know right. what I'm saying? Like that wasn't that wasn't getting ready to be my life. But not that there's anything against sure. that profession in the military. It's just I didn't want to do that in the military. So, but every country I have ever been in, and everyone that knows me from my military time will tell you how I always threw like these major food extravaganzas, so to speak, that uh-huh. were just like huge. Like, where does he get this food from? Because I would like roll in the place and be like, hey, I heard that you all don't use all the oxtail that y'all have in here. They're like, nah, we don't even use the oxtail. You know, we, we bring it in, but sometimes we got too much. I'm like, can I buy? You know, let me uh-huh. make some smothered oxtail, you know. You know, and I mean, even when I was in Saudi Arabia, I threw some big parties, you know, and it was yeah. really about like just knowing where to get things from. And I kind of have that. I had that kind of skill set. So I kind of like I, I was always able to get stuff no matter where I was. Korea, I went and got stuff. People were like, where do you I don't worry about where I got it from. Let's just eat. Let's enjoy this <laughs> right. feast that we're putting from because I've always enjoyed really good food. You know what I'm saying? And then like even in Korea, I was able to go to I started like, you know, when you when you leave the clubs in Korea, the the vendors are always outside, like the street vendors. Right. So like, sure. For me, watching like street food on like Netflix, right? I'm like, damn, I've lived that. Like, I just thought that was a normal thing. I didn't know it was like this other thing that it is now, right? And so, man, I've 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 had a chance to actually work with the, a street vendor in Korea, just like okay. standing there, like you know, oh, this is how you cut this, this is how you dump this in and do this. Oh, okay. When I was in Saudi Arabia, I was able to learn how to do shawarma directly from i went to the same place every time we went into riyadh the exact same place and one day i was like hey i like i got a couple hours can you show me how to you know do this lamb like that and he was like yeah i mean and it was really interesting because oftentimes people think that when you're in the military and overseas no one speaks the language but i learned that people not only spoke the language they spoke better english than anywhere else oftentimes and they were also open because cooking is a universal thing right like it, it breaks down color. It breaks down. Everybody's got to eat. And so I've always tried to use food in that medium also because all these countries I was in, I mean, for whatever God reason that I was there, you know, but I was always able to, um, yeah, food food is just a universal thing for me. Yeah. I could go on all day yeah. about that one. Yeah, I, I love hearing about those experiences and how it, even in the military and you're traveling, it's always coming back to food and oh, yeah. and feeding others. Mm-hmm. At some point, then you go, then you go on to Howard University. You're mm-hmm. you're studying physiology. Like, at, at what point do, <laughs> do you decide? Okay, I'm going to become a chef because then you do ultimately uh, go to culinary school. Yeah. But what happens there? <laughs> so I'm at Howard University. I'm a 28 year old freshman. Okay. So if the listeners can put a hat on and think about just being a freshman in college yeah, and what that life is like, right? Now, right. on top of that, that I'm 28, I've already had three tours in the desert. Like, I'm a different person. Sure. You know, I'm, 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 not t- I'm, I'm in no way a typical freshman. So now sure. I can't really hang with freshmen because, you know, I'm in <laughs> a funny story real quick. I'm in real yeah. algebra. And the, I'll never forget the instructor one day, uh, the professor one day asked me a question. I was like, I don't know. And she was like, well, did you do the homework? And I was like, nope. She was like, well, Mr. Raven, how are you going to learn this if you don't apply yourself? And I was, I was looking at her and I was like, you know what? You're absolutely right. I just had a long night. And I said it like that. The class bust out laughing like it was the most funniest thing. 
I turned around. And I was like, I want everybody to realize something. I'm 28 in remedial algebra. Y'all just graduated from high school and in here. I'm the one who should be laughing at y'all. So I was already a different beast just from that. That was just like all my classes. I was sitting in there, you know, people trying to figure out what they're going to write in English 101. I'm like, I got life experiences. Shoot, I write about anything, you know. I can. Right. I had such a such an imagination from having been to all these other places. It was easy for me to do it. Well, because sure. I wasn't really hanging with anybody that was young, I ended up talking to like grad students and people that were like seniors. So you know, they all can drink, we all can hang out. And so I eventually, I was actually throwing parties at my house. And then that went from one thing to another. And all of a sudden, somebody walked in and was like, dude, you know, be a physical therapist about eight years away for you. I said, yeah, eight, eight yeah. years before I make a dollar. Oh, hell, I'm, I can't do that. You know what I'm saying? Literally. <laughs> and, yeah. so, and so I was, so one of the guys I knew, Russell, Russell, Looks over at me. He goes, Matthew, he says, man, you should go to culinary school. And the first thing I said to him was, there ain't no money in culinary. I said, if you find me a black chef that's making close to six figures, I'll think about it. I said, yeah. no, I got to meet him. Not that you just found him. And just to tell you, I got to meet Chef Erlis Bell, who at the time was executive chef at JW Marriott okay. in Washington, D.C. I literally go through the door. And he is like, who are you here to see? I said, oh, I'm here to see the executive chef, uh, a chef, Erlis Bell, I believe. And they're like, OK, we'll be right back. I see a gentleman walk towards me and he goes, Matthew, Matthew Rafer. I said, yes, sir. And I go, I'm waiting for Erlis Bell. He goes, I am Erlis Bell. And my eyes get like. Uh-huh. And then I ended up meeting uh, Chef Joe Randall and I started meeting like these icons. And this is. Just to be clear, this is like 1995. Okay. Right? Yeah. So I'm meeting these guys that they've been in it. They, they've yeah. been doing it. They've been part of American Culinary Federation. They've been part of all these major things that have happened. And I'm just like, shoot, maybe there is money in culinary. But from that, I go to a culinary school uh, in uh, Falls Church, Virginia. Called, it, at the time, it was called ATI. It's a one-year okay. program. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to run through this program. And about midway through the program, this is 1996, the chef uh, that was there at the time, his name is David Ivy Soto. He says, hey, would you like to go to the Olympics? And I, you know, being a grown ass man, I was like, oh, what event? You know, because I'm thinking he's talking about an event. And he's like, <laughs> right. He's like, no, 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 to work. And I was like, to work. Why would I leave D.C. to go to work at the. He said, no, no, no. I want you. I want you to think about this and then come back and talk to me tomorrow. And I was like, well, when do I need to leave? He was like, we need to put you in a leave of absence tomorrow for school. You can come back and finish and it'll be about a year from now. And I was like, man, I don't want to like, oh, this is crazy. Yeah. I don't want to leave and then have to come back. You know what I'm saying? And so I literally went home, closed my eyes and I woke up. And I was in Atlanta at the 1996 Olympics, like literally, like it, like literally, I, I literally went home, went into school and packed my bags and drove like in two, three days. I was gone. Wow. And that actual time period that Chef Ivy Soto had me do probably is was kind of like the nail hit directly on the head because. I realized that there were, because one, I was an older student, like the way I grasped 
things that I saw and was doing was a little bit different. It wasn't like I needed to learn certain things because I was raised, I was raised out here on the farm. I was raised in the kitchen. My, my first job was at a Piggly Wiggly. Okay. Okay. Uh They do exist. People stop laughing. Um, (laughs) A Piggly Wiggly. And by the time I was 17, I was an assistant deli bakery manager because I mean, all I did was roast big chickens and put them in like, pull everything out, season them, put them on the skewers, put them in. I was, right. you know, helping. I was not only carrying 50, 100 pound bags of whatever they had, they threw at me, but I was also like, oh, learning how to decorate cakes and all that kind of stuff. But my dad was like, that's great for a little job that you got right now, but you don't need to do that as a career. Right. But then when I get in culinary school, it was like, when I say, if anybody's ever that that's listening, if their job that they're doing gets their synapses to fire 24-7, please believe you in the right place. And that's what cooking that's what cooking was doing for me at that moment. I was just like, oh, I know how to do that. Oh, I can do that too. Oh, I know how to do that. Wait, no. Oh, it burned. Oh, wait, this is what you should do that. You're like, it just kind of like was happening. I didn't know why it was happening. I, I had yeah. no idea, Brian, why it was happening. And so that then turned into when I got back from the 96 Olympics, and I worked in Olympic Village, so I was worked where all the sponsors were located, like Bosch and Lom and Coca-Cola and Budweiser and all of them. So sure. I was also connected a little bit differently. I wasn't like in Olympic Village where you were mostly with, with athletes and things like that. I was with the sponsors. So the food was much different. It was much, I believe it was a much higher caliber of food because of, you know, I mean, all the executives from every place are, you know, piling in. Yeah. When yeah. I got back, I asked uh, Chef Ivy Soto if I could double up. And he was like, are you sure? I, he said, because that means you go to school during the day and then you come and you leave for two hours and you'll be right back. I said, I'm not even going to leave. I'm just going to sleep in my car. And he was like, what? And I said, yeah. So I literally came back from the Olympics, doubled up and still graduated with my class. Wow. Well, at the time I was working at Omni Shoreham Hotel in Washington, D.C. And yeah. there's a restaurant in there called Monique's. And the executive chef for Monique's was a female. And so, you know, I get my apprenticeship job. I'm working at Omni Shoreham Hotel. And she looks at me one day and she's and she was one of the chefs that would pull you off the line if you weren't doing something and would replace you with herself and was uh-huh. like, hey, now, if I can walk over here and do this for the next eight hours, I expect you to be able to do the exact same thing. And you didn't leave the line. You literally stood there and watched her do it. So because of that, I had this like, shoot, I had this different idea about being in the kitchen because, one, I'm not a yeller or screamer still to this day. Not uh-huh. because she wasn't a yeller or a screamer and not because any of the other chefs I worked was a yeller or screamer. That just wasn't me. And I had already been in the military and I was older. So... When um, the opportunity came, she said to me one day, she goes, um, Chef Ivy Soto says to me that you want to go to Culinary Institute of America in High Park, New York. I was like, what? She was like, yeah, uh, if you want to go, let me know. I, I, I'm more than willing to write you a letter. I was uh-huh. like, what the, what the hell? I was like, I just finished you. I'm not getting ready to go back to school. I have left Howard University to be a physical therapist. I have now done a full year program. Why would I go back to school? It doesn't make yeah. any sense. And David, and I call him David now because we've become extremely good friends. He said to me midway through, he goes, hey, he said, I believe that you should have a degree in this. 
He was like, the one-year program, there are people out there that this one-year program is what's good for them, and that's what they that's going to be good enough for them. He was like, but someone like you, you should have a degree. Yeah. Okay, I don't know what that means exactly. What am I getting ready to learn? I don't know. I was like, I already went through this. Like, I've already done this. And I ended up going to the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York. And I remember, you know, like my first year there, I was kind of, I wasn't struggling, but I was trying to figure out had I made the right move because I was basically, so Chef Ivy Soto is a graduate from the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York. Okay. We just went through one year with him. So right. he taught me as though I was going, as though I was going to go to CIA, which right. I, I didn't, I never fathomed that that's what was happening through his teaching and how he handled different situations with me and things. And then next thing you know, I end up having a bachelor's degree um, in culinary management from them. My last couple of jobs that I've done, I've, I was the executive chef at the House of Representatives for Hope Catering Company, the premier catering company at the House of Representatives still. Doing that, I ended up being over the Pentagon Conference Center and Library, the National Archives, the Canadian Embassy, and the National Defense University. So I had, so there were like five properties, 125 employees, and five different menus. And none of the menus really replicated themselves outside of the sandwiches and the burgers. Everything else was completely different at each one. So... But I, I mean, little did I know that when I went to the Olympics that I was actually going to learn everything to learn how to do things in five different places without going crazy. Like, OK, another menu. Oh, my God. I mean, I have sure. literally created a Canadian New Year's party at the exact same time that I was creating a party for. Oh, my God. What was it? It was the it wasn't Germany. It was one of the embassies. I forgot. But it was it was completely different from Canadian food. And so right. I, I was doing both of these menus at the exact same time. And all of a sudden I was like, wait, am I literally able to like jump from making moose milk? <laughs> you know uh-huh. what I'm saying? It's <laughs> a thing. It's moose milk. You should look it up. It's delicious, by the way. Um, okay. From a moose. So from making moose milk to like doing like a turmeric and ginger tea for another party that was completely healthy and holistic. So it was a lot of, it was a lot of that. I didn't realize at the time that that's what I was starting to learn. And it really has shaped like my thought processes because I went from the House of Representatives and then next thing you know, I was at Little St. Simon's Island, which is 10,000 acres, seven miles of private beach, accessible only by boat with no more than 32 guests on the island at a time. Yeah. With its own farm, its own water and filtration system, like all this. And that's right here in coastal Georgia. It's an ecotourism spot. It's just, it, it was just amazing. So I, I, my career has really did a lot of things that like some people went and worked for specific named individuals because that's where they wanted their training and all of that to come from. For me, I just always wanted to be around what I would say uh, food explosions, places that were going to challenge me to the point to where my mind would have to like to and come back in for me to like grasp it. And I would really be learning something new because, you know, they always say there's nothing new under the sun that hasn't been cooked or eaten before to include humans, by the way. But, um, yeah. but, uh, and so I've always been that kind of person. We're like, okay, uh, if I can learn something new, then let me do it. So there we have it. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Matthew Rayford, author of Bress and Niam, where we talk more about the book and taking over his family's farm. Stay tuned. 
Today's show is sponsored by Chronicle Books. I'm Clea Worster, salt and spine producer, and Chronicle Books is the first place I go when I'm looking for a gift for someone. They publish a wide variety of cookbooks, so I know that I'll find something for anyone on my list. From Julia Tertian's Small Victories to Yodam Odalenghi's Plenty, there's something for everyone, including me. For over 50 years, Chronicle has been partnering with recipe developers, chefs, and organizations that represent the diversity of our world to create distinctive, design-forward products inspired by the enduring magic of books and by sparking the passions of others. Chronicle books are sold not just in bookstores. You'll find their telltale spectacles on store shelves of all kinds, all over the world, and at chroniclebooks.com. And we have a special promotion just for Salt and Spine listeners. You can use promo code SALT25 to receive 25% off of your orders, with free ground shipping on orders over $25 through the end of 2021. Once you start looking for Chronicle books, you can't miss them. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at Salt and Spine, where you'll find the chance to win copies of featured cookbooks as well as recipes from the books. Each week, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin to Nigella Lawson to Samin Nosrat and Carla Hall, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring interviews with your favorite authors. If you're a new listener, check out our catalog of more than 100 interviews with cookbook authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, and so much more. We can only do it thanks to listeners like you. The best way to support our work here at Salt and Spine is by subscribing to our Patreon page. You can join the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Subscribers receive early access to events, opportunities to win signed cookbooks, and bonus content. You can find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at www.patreon.com slash saltandspine. And now back to our conversation with Matthew Rayford, author of Bress and Nam. Yeah, and I mean, if folks can believe it, I mean, that's not even your full resume, right? I mean, you also oh, no. you apprenticed yeah. at UC Santa Cruz. Like you've done, you've done so much. Yeah. And then you have this sort of pivotal moment, I think, where you go back to Gilliard Farms for a family reunion, right, in mm-hmm. 2011, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and the course of your career and your Ooh. life kind of shifts a bit at that yeah. moment. Yeah. It shifts all on a conversation that my Nana, my mom, and my aunt had that was, you know, so I'm, I'm going to give you the voices so that way you can kind of get what happened okay. to my sister and I. So okay. uh, my Nana's like, baby, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing all right, Nana. So um, when are we going to talk about this land? Um, I don't know. Whenever y'all want to talk about it. My mom. Ooh, Lord. Come on. Sit on that. We need to talk. My aunt. Mm, grown now, huh? She had a very, like, deep voice. You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. But she, yeah. It, but it was raspy. It was much more raspy okay. than I could possibly make it. So my Nana leans in over the table. And and if anyone's ever had their grandmother have a conversation with them that was, like, was about their life. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was super, super serious about their life. Not like you in trouble or anything, but, like, leaning in. And she goes, mm, baby, what are we going to do with all this land? And I look over at my sister who's sitting next to me and I say, we should go back to farming it now. And she said, Ooh, did you say we, baby? I said, yes, ma'am. So my mom, I, I, I think I've never told this part of the story. My mom said, always says, so all these years. And now you're going to say, 
all these years, baby. You going to say now that you want to come home and do something? What you going to do? What you know about doing? I never tell that part of the story. And I think mostly because I had to look back to my sister because I said we, as in my sister and I, because that's who's sitting there. We're, we're both sitting there, right? Right. And then my sister goes, Nana, we going to phone. I didn't realize it, but if you ever watched Punked before, they literally uh-huh. reached underneath the table and was like, here's the lamb, baby. Get the farming. I was like, oh, snap. We just, like. Yeah, she, she handed you the deed, right? Handed me the deed, yeah. And yeah. so now, yeah, just just handed them to me, like, here, you know? Yeah. And so driving back, my wife at the time uh, looked at me and was like, what the what did you just do? And I was like, uh, I don't know, we'll figure it out. You know, that kind of a thing. And uh-huh. on the farm, there's Union School. And Union School was built in 1907. So from 1907 to 1955, it was the only place for black folks to go to school at within about a 25, 50 mile radius of here. 25 miles, okay. pretty much for the country. What a lot of people also don't know is Brunswick itself is kind of a peninsula, so to speak, but lots of water. Oh, my God. The ocean is right here. Like we we butt up to the ocean, baby. You know what I'm saying? Like right. from my yeah. farm to the beach is 10 minutes. It's 15 yeah. minutes. But my farm to water, like a, a large body of water, is less than five. So, yeah. you know, because of that, I was like, okay, well, nobody's in Union School, which has been turned into a guest house. Maybe I can come home and move into there. And then I was like, wait, I don't really, I mean, I haven't farmed since I was a kid. Now I'm 40. Yeah. Right? I'm like, oh, shoot. So I'm going through books, reading stuff. And I was like, wait, I'm a veteran. There got to be something for veteran farmers. So I started looking through stuff. And then that's how UC Santa Cruz that you talked about earlier came up. And so I reached out to UC Santa Cruz and literally, oh, my God. I was like, I don't have the money to go to UC Santa Cruz. What what am I thinking? Wait, do I even want to go back to school like that? And then I saw the program, the Center for Agroecology and Sustainable Food Systems, which was a six-month program that you actually – eat, sleep, and breathe on the farm at UC Santa Cruz. And that's the only thing you do all day, every day, until the program is over with. And I was like, oh, living in a tent for six months? I can do that with my eyes closed. So I was like, sign me up, you know? From that, the program was going through, like, it became a very tumultuous program that specific year. And I happened to say at one point, I was like, hey, is there any way we can do a farm dinner? When's the last time y'all did a farm dinner? And so I actually started the farm dinners at UC Santa Cruz at that point in time as a fundraiser to help ensure that there will be other people that could go through the program at the, at the amount that it costs then, you know, it's went up only a little over the last 10 years, but I wanted to do that. And I promised them that, uh, either we raised $150,000 or I would just keep coming back um, for five years. And literally by year two, I believe we hit 150. I still kept coming back for five years. And we just kept, 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 kept. And we raised quite a bit of money to do lots of different things. And it wasn't for me, and I, I said this during that very first thing, is that I understand why people go to fundraisers. They pay their amount of money. They go eat the great food. Yada, yada, yada. Yeah. 
However, when you go to fundraisers, if you believe in the event, most people come with a little more money to do a little extra, whether it's a private bidding or whatever, whatever. So what I did was I sold dinners. And so how I raised money was I did these massive amounts of money for me to do dinners up to 20 people. And so I would fly back to Santa Cruz and we just kept raising money that way. And that is an amazing program. The Center for Agroecology and Sustainable Food Systems, if if folks want to learn and understand farming and orchard and I mean, even now with the hay barn and everything else, learn about ranching and all the, this is like the preeminent program to literally go through. It's just amazing. And one of the things that I was establishing also is relationship building. And one Mm -hmm. of the big things that I was explaining to people is that we needed, that we should as human beings, as we work with each other and work with nature, that we should always be trying to ensure that we're building relationships with all the people that fall into our collective, whether it's you and I right now and, you know, most of the time when things like this happen, people never speak to each other again. It's like it's done. Like you never. Right. Who, and then until we meet at some magical party somewhere and we just have them be like, I know you. Don't I know you and I forget you know, right, one of right. the things I, I did this year coming into 2021 was I intentionally took the first 90 days to call 90 people that I hadn't talked to in a year or two more. And I realized when I called all these people that. The last time I talked to them, I had said, hey, let's make sure we stay in contact. Like 90 mm-hmm. people I said that to? Like, how did my life get so crazy that that, that, that is what happened? And the reason I'm saying all yeah. this is that that's also how the book came about, was relationships. Yeah. Like, I had built relationships with my literary agent and had no idea that I would that the Eckes group and that Lisa Eckes and Sally Eckes would even remember me, right? Because I met them. Through Natalie Dupree. Uh-huh. So, and and that was just me going to the Charleston Food and Wine Festival, talking to Natalie Dupree one day, and I was at her house all of a sudden, right? This is the, yeah. you know, next to Edna Lewis, when you talk about the doms of Southern food and food weight, this is who you talk to, right? And I'm sitting yeah. there talking to her, and she goes, this was 2009, maybe? 2003, okay. 2009? And Natalie says to me then, she goes, you know, you should write a cookbook. And I was like, yeah, sure. Okay. Uh-huh. Like, I don't have the money to write a cookbook. She said, what do you mean? Because I had, I've always heard about all this money that people spend to write their own cookbooks. And then they go and find a publisher and da, da, da. And she was like, uh-uh, you got it a little backwards. Let's, 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 let me introduce you to some people. And so within our relationship, I created relationships with other people. And so, I'm saying also all that is that's the same thing with the fundraising piece for UC Santa Cruz. It was all about creating relationships. I had met half the people that attended that first thing I had met during the six months that I was there. I wasn't the only person met them. Like they met all the students. And so I believe that part of why I ended up writing this cookbook was because it was about figuring out ways for people to build relationships on things that they've never had conversation about. Yeah, that that's fascinating how the book came to be and how all of that is just relationship and building on each yeah, other. Definitely. 
what did you envision when this book was coming together, the form that it would take? Yeah. You sort of structure it in a really unique way, right? You organize it by chapters that are um, so, titled with the elemental yeah, beginnings, right? Yeah, Earth, so, water, fire. Yeah. yeah so, talk about that process a bit. <laughs> and you talking about sitting down with somebody super cool, the writer that I worked with, Amy Condon. She, dude, when, whenever anybody talks about the bee's knees, there should be a picture yeah. of Amy Condon. Um, because she is the bee's knees. She literally, her and I did a Ted, a Ted talk in Savannah. Okay. When we, when we got off, when I did my, my part, if anyone's had to do something like memorize their Easter speech, that's what Uh a Ted talk is like where you, you (laughs) you can't mess up one of the words because it throws you all off. Right. So I felt a little tired after I got up there because I had to say something for 15 minutes that I had memorized. You know, there were right. notes on the stage. And when I got off the stage, I went to sit down. I was like, oh, God. I had just put my face in my hands and pull my. And right as I pulled my face up, Amy is standing right there. And she goes, you better write a book. And I said, you better help me. Because I knew, <laughs> I also knew Amy was, uh, I, I knew Amy from uh, other events like Georgia Public, Georgia Public Broadcasting and some other things. And I, when I said that, she was like, okay, let's talk about it. Yeah. I was like, what? I was like, so then I looked at her dead in her face. I was like, and how much is this going to cost? And she was going, for us to talk about it? She said, nothing. She said, let's just talk about it. Yeah. And I literally, here, here were my exact words when we finally had the conversation. I said, Amy, I want to write the book based on ocean, earth, wind, and fire. And she cracks up laughing. She said, you know, I love earth, wind, and fire. I said, no, I didn't. But now I do. <laughs> and, I said, and so she was like, well, that's different. She was like, why Why would you want to do that? I said, well, I want it also to include spirits and nectar. And she was like, yeah. okay, wait, you might be on to something. I said, well, one, I've never seen a book written in that kind of a format that the chapters fall like that. I said, but I also want to use the Gullah Geechee words that I grew up with and heard as part of that narrative. Yeah. So the more I talked to Amy, the more I realized that there were parts of me, Matthew Rayford, that because my dad had always made sure that, you know, the only the only language we were able to speak in our house was the Queen's English. So I never I was never able to take on the Gullah Geechee language that is part of my normal conversation, so to speak. And so and no one spoke it out here like no like everybody was like. It's got to be English. Da, da, da. I mean, even my running joke is that my name is Matthew Rayford and that when I go into places and they go, Matthew Rayford, and I walk through the door, I can tell whether they have shock and awe on their faces. Sometimes it's not like a abrasive kind of shock and awe, but that they didn't expect this guy to walk through the door because Matthew uh-huh. Rayford has no connotation of a guy that's, you know, almost six feet tall, 200 some pounds, long locks, you know. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Right. But that was also part of, you know, where I also started to realize that that Gullah Geechee heritage of mine is why I know how to do a lot of these things is because I was raised. I mean, I just told somebody the other day. And matter of fact, Howard Conyers and I were talking maybe about a year ago about hogs and doing whole hogs. And I was uh-huh. saying how I grew up eating whole hog. But the only time we had whole hog was in November. And he was like, okay. And so we started talking about 
the fact that for me, whole hog was done only in November when you killed all the hogs that you needed to kill before there was like big abattoirs and all this other stuff. Right. So sure. the hams, we used to have a smokehouse here. So there was, they would put the hams up for the year that things were getting smoked, blah, blah, blah. And then you didn't kill like a hundred hogs. You know what I'm saying? Right. What, it, what, <laughs> right. That wasn't the deal. And then a lot of that meat went to the family. So I was like, Oh, okay. So as Howard and I started talking about it, I started to realize also like, wait, this whole artisan way of life that people have started to build for themselves and talk about, and there's nothing against that. So don't, I don't want anybody to take this as my, as, as what I'm saying. What I'm saying uh-huh. is, is that I was born doing this butchery out here. I was born raising not only, you know, crookneck squash and watermelon, but also peanuts. Like I didn't, I did mm-hmm. not even realize that my great grandfather until maybe about a couple of years back, my great grandfather planted sweet potatoes and peanuts and he finished his hogs on them the last couple of months. I didn't know that. Okay. But then I also realized that, well, we had the original sugarcane press here. And I realized that sugarcane, sweet potatoes and peanuts come up around the same time. It takes about the, it takes almost all year to grow all that stuff. Sure. And I was like, wow, like that was like a way to create mass. So when people talk about Iberico hogs, wait, I was eating that kind of meat when I was a kid. So yeah. I think that, you know, the old ways are still the old ways. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's not a, there's really not a lot of new spins that people are putting on the old ways. They're just doing the old ways. Sure. Did you know too, that the book would be so personal? I mean, it's, it's, not only a cookbook, but it's also so much of your life story. And even the beginning pages, there's all these stunning photos of old things, uh, old almanacs, mm-hmm. old cookbooks, yeah. letters from your family that are photographed on these pages mm-hmm. that really sort of tell your story. No, Was that Brian, I, I did not no. really think that, that, that I really, you know what I thought I was going to write on, on the for real. And yeah. I just thought I was going to put down a bunch of recipes that I have loved and have done. And Amy literally would say for every recipe I brought her, she would go tell me a story about it. Yeah. And I was like, what? What's it? T- tell me a story about it. And I was like, why? I was like, I wrote the recipe. And she was like, okay, but why did you write the recipe? What, what got you to think to write this specific recipe? And so yeah. I, I then took that approach to writing as compared to here's this whole long list of of recipes that I've created over the years that create a cookbook. You know, I I really started and, and that was like the very beginning. Amy started that off at the very beginning. And so I started off telling her like all the stories about like even she would come out here and just like walk on the land and go. So do you have any story behind this right here? Do you know anything about why is this right here? And I would go, oh, sometimes I'd be like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't even, I have no idea. And then there was sure. a lot of other times she was like, she would ask me something. I'd be like, oh, well, my grandfather, this is the, so the muscadines that, that are in the book, that's part of the original stock that my great grandfather put out here. Right. Okay. And muscadines yeah. are a wild, a wild deal. Right. They're wild right. great. My great my my great grandfather was six five, I believe Horace was. So he built the muscadine grape so that 
arbor so he could walk underneath it and harvest. Okay. When my Nana built it, who was like five feet tall, I guess, she built it. Yeah. So she could just kind of like scooch underneath it a little bit and pick. I didn't even realize uh-huh. all of this until literally like it probably was what, 2014, my Nana and I were talking one day and she was like, baby, I need you to go on out there and, and thrash them grapes for me real quick and bring them in. Go on in there and get them sheets. I just bought some new sheets. And so I'm out there thrashing. Da, da, da. And she's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm thrashing. She was like, that ain't the way I told I said, yes, it is. It's the way you told me, Nana. Baby, come here. Let me show you something. And she walks underneath it and like taps her little cane thing across. And I'm like, uh-huh. Nana, I'm too tall for that. And she was like, well, get on your knees. Walk underneath there, baby. I need you to get, I want all them grapes. But the only ones I want is the ones that's ready. And I was like, oh, okay, you know. Yeah. But I, you know <laughs> so it was kind of like that, you know. So, yeah. So the, the book took on its life because of, uh, yeah, it took, it took on a life of its own. I don't, I don't think I, my thought process, I, like I said, it was going to be a few stories about this, that, and the third. Uh-huh. We'll talk about Gilliard Farms a little bit. And then, you know, there were times that Amy and I just talked on the phone where she was like, well, tell me about what it was like to be in the military. And tell me what it was like to, da, 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 da. Tell me what it was like to cook this, da, da, da. And so she literally started formulating, uh, taking all of that information and then coalescing it into this amazing book this year. I mean, I, it was really interesting because every time she would go here, this story that you gave me is going to go with this recipe. Or I would go, wow, that's an interesting story. And sometimes she's she. there were several stories that she wrote or started writing or started talking to me about that I then went and looked to find the recipe or pull the recipe from something that I had already done because I was like, oh, wait, she's talking about, you know, that Jell-O pie. Oh, shoot. I think I'm, a, you know, and I literally had to go to my cousin. I was sitting there, I was like, who has recently passed. I said, Hey, I said, you remember the Jello pie Aunt Mary Lou used to make? She was like, yeah, you talking about the pie that she made for you every time you came home from the military? I was like, yeah, that one. And she goes, yeah. She was like, you know how to make that? And I was like, do I? And she was like, yeah. I was like, are you sure? She was like, name off the first three things. And I said, Jello, graham cracker, crust, whipped cream. She was like, what else do you think you need? And I was like, oh, shoot. Right. I do remember, you know, so right. some of the book came from some of those kinds of things. And I also wanted to ensure that there were food things that were in there, Brian, that like were not, I don't want anybody to look at the recipe for the spatchcock chicken, for instance, and be like, oh, I saw a recipe like this and da 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 But I want someone to look at me like, sumac, wild back mm-hmm. on sumac, what, what, you know, what made him do that? Oh, because it grows out here wild and I use it, you know? So, right. Yeah. So it's it's so the book like literally took on took on that kind of a life, and the more that happened within each one of the elements, the more I was able to like pull stuff out of myself to actually have the stories and actually, as much as I like to talk, and anybody that might be listening to this as com- that might be a friend of mine, they're like, yeah, Matthew loves to talk. I don't <laughs> necessarily like to talk about my personal ish. I, I'll talk about everything else. And so this book became very personal for me because, I mean, I was talking about things that, I mean, I, I would only tell like little bits of it if I ever told anybody any of it. Or it's going to be a lot of things within the book, I think, as people start to uh, get into it and do the recipes. I just had a friend of mine look through it and was like, dude, I just read the stories. 
And I was like, really? He was like, yeah. He's like, I was just enthralled with the stories. And I was like, he's like, I didn't even know that stuff about you. I was like, man, you've known me 25 years. What do you mean you didn't know this stuff? He was like, nah, for real, dude. I didn't even know this. So, yeah, it's yeah. very personal. It's very personal. Well, I know we're running short on time before we close with our little game, but I just want to ask you, too, about the importance of having this book published, like how it feels to uh, about to be out in the world. Yeah. Right? It's not, not quite out there yet, but especially writing a, a cookbook that's about Golagichi cuisine and about your life. I mean, certainly there's been a number of cookbooks and authors who have written about Golagichi food, mm-hmm. you know, Verdame Smart Grosvenor is one mm-hmm. and Sally Ann Robinson, both are sort of well-known yeah, authors yeah. in that respect. But how do you feel to sort of be building on that, that portfolio of, of existing of work in work. terms yeah, of Golagichi You know, it's, what's been interesting is I, I always wanted to write a book that was indicative of coastal Georgia. Uh-huh. And so I tried to, as we were doing this, I tried to ensure the lens was very coastal Georgia. Like the way I grew up, the way I, I didn't like, there's nothing exaggerated. This is exactly how it is here on the coast of Georgia. And what's even more interesting is when I talk to people, when I've even here recently, over the last five, 10 years, when I tell people I'm from Brunswick, Georgia on the coast, they're like, so Savannah, I'm like, no, I'm like, I'm further. They're like, oh, I thought, yeah. I thought it stopped in Savannah. So it's also that the sense of place, the sense of relationships is what I wanted the book to, to really be. And I remember when I, when I spoke to Sally Ann two years ago and told her that I was thinking about writing the book, her exact thing was write it from your heart. And the last time I heard anybody say I needed to do something with my heart was Fritz Schonerschmidt, Chef Fritz Schonerschmidt. He said to me one day as I was graduating, he said, Matthew, if you cook with your heart and let it come through your hands, there will never be a dish that will come out wrong. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, oh, and I followed that my whole culinary career. I've tried to ensure that when I cook anywhere, Whatever happened prior to me getting to work, it is where it is. I have to be able to cook with my heart and let it come through my hands because ultimately everything that's in my spirit is going to come out in that dish in some shape, form or fashion. So, yeah, I feel I also feel honored to even be within that same company, you know, of people that, you know, because that's taking a chance. Right. You're going to you're going to write about your culture and you're black and you're Gullah Geechee and. Like I, I, I took a chance on that. I, even the name, when it was really interesting, the publisher, when when Ann from Countryman Press said, "Hey, do you have a name for the book?" And we, this is like I haven't even really got into writing it yet. Uh huh. And I, it, she's on speakerphone. I look over at Amy, and Amy just kind of like, just kind of like she just like slowly smiles, and I go, "Yes, I want to name it Bressam Yam," and she's like. Uh-huh. What does that mean? I said, oh, it's Gullah Geechee for bless and eat. And she was like, <gasps> and it was done. And I was like, yeah. okay, wait. Because, and the, one of the reasons I wanted it to have that name was because I want everybody to feel blessed as they eat. And it's also part of what you know, what my nana and everybody would say before we eat. Come on, let's go ahead and say the blessing and then we're going to eat. Well, okay, uh-huh. if, if that's what's always said, why not? put that into into the form so yeah this is my first book i'm excited i'm happy to be on salt and spine and i totally appreciate your time as much as as i've enjoyed this interview 
Yes, same. And and we're thrilled to have you. And we can't close without a little game. Okay. We always put all of our guests to the culinary test. Uh-oh. So we'll, we, we've got our cards here. Um, I, use. <laughs> I, I think you'll be great. So we're going to just play a little game sort of like chopped, oh. right? So you'll have a, a basket of ingredients that you can work okay. with and drawing on both your farming knowledge as as a sixth generation farmer and your immense culinary knowledge tell us what you might make if we were you know coming over for dinner we're coming to gilliard farms tonight and here's what you've got to work with how does that sound all right so we'll we'll draw one from each of our categories we've got vegetables proteins flavors which are herbs spices things and then our our secret ingredient deck which you never know um, what you're gonna have to work with there (laughs) All right, so let's see. Our vegetable we're working with is kale. Okay, kale. Okay. Uh, the protein we've got, let's see, is duck. Duck. The flavor we're working with is cinnamon. Okay. And our secret ingredient is liver. Oh. Uh, liver. Okay, is it beef liver? What? What? Where's the liver from? Do we know where? It does. It doesn't specify. It just says mammal, fowl, or fish liver. So I think open ended. You can choose the liver we're working with. Okay, no worries. So we've got kale, cinnamon, duck, and a liver of your choice. Okay, what might we make if we're coming over to Gilliard Farms and this is what you've got to work with? That's what I got to work with. Okay, so um, plus you can assume you've got a a pantry. Yeah, I got a pantry too. No worries. Yeah. So the first thing I would do is, do you drink beer? I do. What kind, yes. what kind of beer do you like? I usually like hoppier beers, IPAs, and how oil. about like a double IPA? You like those? Sounds great. Oh, yeah, I know exactly what I'm going to do now. All the way through all of this, I just need to know because you're going to be at this meal. I want to make sure that my guests are being satisfied. So first thing I do yes. is because we have a lot of fresh herbs here, I go ahead and make a really nice liver pate, and then I take uh-huh. a double IPA, possibly from New Belgium, like a Voodoo Ranger or something like that, and make a really nice beer bread and then cut that beer bread really, really nice and grill it off and then put the pate on it with some fresh herbs on the top of that. With the duck and the cinnamon, I would make a dark wing duck. I would do a a cinnamon, uh, orange, and uh, soy glaze that I would cook down really, really slow. As though I was going to really kind of make a master sauce a little bit. Uh-huh. I take the duck and because it's the whole duck, correct? Yeah. Awesome. So I'd probably spatchcock that whole duck, take a cast iron pan okay. and put it into the open fire. So it got super, super, super hot. Pull it out sure. and slather the duck with as much of that as possible. And then uh, put that inside of uh, the cob oven. And uh, let it just roast while, and I would do that while we were eating the liver pate. Kale, what I do with the kale is I pull up some of these fresh radishes out here, grab a little bit of olive oil, lemon juice, and uh, some of the, oh shoot, that's right. We got, we have some basil, some oregano, and some fresh green onion. And make us a quick little salad with a part of the kale. And then I would definitely, I mean, I'm getting ready to go super crazy on this one. I'd make a mess of greens with some smoking hot and sweet spice. So there's no uh-huh. meat in it. Um, but it's, yeah. it's uh, cause I don't want anything to take away from this amazing duck that we're about to eat. We still have sure. some of that really nice double IPA beer, beer bread that's left over. Cause we didn't use it all. 
And uh-huh. so that would be along with this dinner and some roasted sweet potatoes. Wow. Delicious. That sounds incredible. Oh, I'm not. And I maybe one. Last thing. Oh, yeah. Right. So I can't. This would be crazy if I didn't do this. So I would take the because I was cinnamon stick that I saw there. I would break right. the cinnamon stick, cook it down with a little bit of coconut milk, add some chocolate and make a chocolate coconut coat de creme really quick. Just t- toss it in the refrigerator, let it thicken up a little bit. It'd have that nice little spice. And we call that choco bun bun. So we'd have dark winged duck. Choco bun bun, a mess of greens, and a little bit of country pate. That sounds delicious. <laughs> you you certainly won won that game. <laughs> I was I was waiting for you to say we were having the the lime jello uh, pie oh, okay, for dessert. Okay, okay, but okay. I like your I like your take a lot better. No worries, no worries. <laughs> well, this was so much fun, Matthew. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Man, thank you for having me, Brian. This was uh, this was amazing. I look forward to us connecting outside of this and just catching up. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our website, saltandspine.com. There you'll find featured recipes from Bress and Niam. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. You can also leave us a rating on iTunes or join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Clea Worcester. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering digital classes for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Today's show was brought to you by Chronicle Books. Remember, you can get 25% off using the promo code SALT25, that's S-A-L-T-2-5, at chroniclebooks.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonimo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Celia at Omnivore Books, and to Monique at Hardcover Cook. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Thank you.